everything we see on TV, in movies, on social media, in books, and especially women's magazines is curated and strategic in order to manipulate us for a certain agenda. We know about fake news when it comes to politics, but did you know that there is fake news when it comes to fashion in women's magazines? All those stories about women doing this or doing that, and they all happen to be leftists or nymphomaniacs, likely fake, and it's been happening for decades. My guest today has such a crazy story and testimony. She worked for Cosmopolitan magazine in the 70s and witnessed firsthand how propaganda for women specifically is packaged and sold. She helped write it until she had an aha moment, converted to Catholicism, and realized how she had been living was hurting women, not helping. She literally went from propaganda writer to whistleblower. Now she is the author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. Please welcome Sue Ellen Browder to The Spillover. For 20 years, you wrote feminist propaganda for Cosmopolitan magazine. We got to start at the beginning. How did you end up at Cosmo in the first place? Actually, there was an ad in the New York Times, and I answered it. I was a magazine writer. I had trained as a journalist at the University of um, Missouri School of Journalism, and there was an ad in the New York Times, and I answered it, and it was Cosmo. What did it That's say that the job was? It didn't. I it just said it was just said it was in a magazine. And uh, I when I was at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, I had studied cosmopolitan. We had a class where you were supposed to look at a magazine, take a popular magazine and analyze it. And I analyzed it at the University of Missouri. And I said, you know, these stories in this magazine look like they're made up. I said, they're, they're too packed. I said, that's why I told my, my uh, class. And when I got to Cosmo, I found out I was right. Those, those stories were made up. Now, to just give some reference, I think, for our listeners, what did the cultural landscape of the 60s and the 70s look like? Were, were there any defining moments of the feminist movement that you can recall that set the stage for what we're seeing today? There was a, a parade in New York City in 1971, I think it was 71, that Betty Friedan, who was with the founder of the feminist movement, she wrote The Feminine Mystique. She was in charge of this march, this women's march, and they marched down Fifth Avenue in New York City, and it created a great splash as all these women marched down and were trying to, to fight for women's rights. You have to remember, though, in those days, Women were being fired for being pregnant. I was fired for being pregnant. Uh, a, a married woman could not get uh, credit in her own name. There were a lot women were not paid the same thing that men were paid for the, doing the same job. So there were a lot of, of injustices that women were fighting at that time that we've now won. I mean, there are no longer, uh, it's, it's illegal to fire a woman for being pregnant, except guess what? Under the, under the radar, it still happened. In what year was it when you started working for Cosmopolitan? 1971. Did you immediately start writing feminist slanted pieces, or did you write more normal stuff at first? Well, at first, I was just a, uh, a secretary. I was an editorial assistant, which is a glorified secretary, which was interesting because I had access to all the uh, files. <laughs> 
And so I, you know, I in the I was I was a young, ambitious young lady from um, Iowa, and I didn't realize at that time what I was getting into. Okay, but but I was so I didn't. I was just a secretary. I would answer the phone. And see, this is the thing that I knew, learned, and the reason why I wrote my book. You've got my book subverted. The reason I wrote that book was because when I was sitting there at my little blue desk at Cosmopolitan, the thing that I noticed, the one little thing that I noticed, was that the women's movement and the sexual revolution were two radically different movements. Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan, would have loved for her sex rag, sex rag, to be part of the women's movement. And Betty Friedan, who had launched the women's movement with her book, The Feminine Mystique, called Cosmo quite obscene and quite horrible. She did. Why? Because because it was in, it, because of the sex attitudes. Betty Friedan was, oddly enough, Betty Friedan was a family feminist. She believed in the family. She was a, a grand, or she became a grandmother of three grandchildren. She was, she, she didn't want all of this wild sex stuff. She just wanted she wanted women to be to be more confident to not feel like they needed to be homemakers. She thought women would be happy if we did go outside of the home and work a nine to five. Correct. Well, she she wanted she wanted equal pay for equal work for sure. And also, Benny Friedan was having troubles in her marriage. She was about ready to get her divorce, and so she wanted women to be treated fairly in the workforce. That's what she wanted. That's really what she. Um. So how did the how did how did it change so that we ended up with abortion, which is a sex revolution demand, being so prominent in the feminist movement? Here's an example of what a busy weekend is like for me. A friend's birthday dinner on Friday, another friend's one-year-old's birthday Saturday morning, church Saturday night, a facial Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, spending some time with a child in the foster care system that I do volunteer work with through Child Advocates or the CASA program. Getting me through all of it and keeping my skin hydrated and sun protected is conservative-owned Mimi Skincare. This month is the best month to finally try some conservative alternative brands and see if you like them. It's face wash and moisturizer, baby. If you try it, you might love it. And if you don't, you don't. But once I tried the vitamin C cleanser, vitamin C toner, and hydrating retinol infused moisturizer from Nimi, I was hooked. Skincare can be as complicated or as simple as you want it to. Nimi's mix and match three-step plans are great for those of us who are busy or just don't like to have an elaborate skincare routine. So go to NimiSkincare.com with code Alex Clark at checkout for 10% off. That's N-I-M-I skincare.com with code Alex Clark at checkout for 10% off or just click the link in the description. What you're saying is that the feminist movement, there were a lot of redeeming qualities and then it ended up getting hijacked. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's by the sexual right. revolution. That's right. That's right. And the sexual revolution and the women's movement you're saying were separate movements before. Right. And... Yeah. And um, and then suddenly be- being a feminist became synonymous with being pro-abortion when Roe v. Wade happened in 1973. Actually, it happened before because, okay, so how, since Betty Friedan was a family feminist, and she actually even later wrote a book saying we're overemphasizing abortion rights. How did we get to the point, Betty Friedan was the one that inserted abortion into the women's movement. 
And we actually had the night that it happened, November 18th, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel, when about 105 feminists had gathered, mostly women, a couple of young men, uh, had gathered to, build, to draw up a Bill of Rights, a Women's Bill of Rights. And most of the things on that Bill of Rights that night, we would all agree with. Women should have equal pay for equal work. Women should not be fired for being pregnant. All those things. There were only two rights they fought over that night, and, and we're still fighting over them today. One was the Equal Rights Amendment. They, they fought tooth and nail over that. There were a lot of women did, that opposed that. Feminists, the, the original feminists of, 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 uh, in America, on November 18, 1967, in the Chinese row. The other thing they fought about that night was the abortion and, and what then, were they saying? What were people disagreeing on? They were saying the same thing people are saying today. One woman said, I'm against murder. They, they were fighting over it. They fought until almost midnight. Betty Friedan, okay, we're going to find out how did Betty Friedan get conned. But Betty Friedan uh, sprang that last right on them um, at the end of the meeting. And they fought over it until almost midnight. It created an uproar. People went out of the room, came back. It was, it was, it was a nightmare. And finally, at almost midnight that night, in the Chinese room, 57 people voted to insert abortion in the women's movement. Just 57 people. And from that moment on, uh, abortion became integrated with feminine, with uh, um, the, the feminist movement. 57 people. And that's it. And that was it. One third of those women walked out that night and later resigned over the abortion vote. These were pro-life women that walked out that night. And where did they go? Yeah, where did they go? Where did they go? Well, there was one who was, her name was Betty Boyer. She lived in Cleveland. She went back and started an organization called WHEEL, the Women's Equity Action League. And it was a pro-life women's group that um, was, was still, she wanted, she wanted to give the people in Cleveland the feminist movement that she had promised them. Mm. She was furious over the abortion right, right. And so she founded this organization, the pro-life women who were in WHEEL, Women's Equity Action League, were the ones that created a whole bunch. I've got a list here of all the things that they, that they did. Just a second here. Let's get this out here. Yes, give us the tea, as they give like to say. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> what, they, what WHEEL did. They opened up academia to women. So now you could go to law school if you wanted to. They got a law passed to prevent women from being fired for being pregnant. They fought for equal pay for equal work and for a married woman's right to apply for credit in her own name. These were the things that they achieved. They achieved them behind the scenes, behind the scenes of the media. And why was it so behind the scenes, if you will? Why did nobody talk about WHEEL? If they're all talking about the National Organization for Women and everything, why aren't they talking about WHEEL? Well, I talked to Betty Boyer's niece, who's still alive, and she said Wheel did not want the publicity because all these were working women, 
And they didn't want their bosses to know they were some of those crazy women out fighting for those rights. Oh, yeah. And so they they didn't want the publicity, and they said, you know, hey, let them have it. Let them have it if they want it. Now, looking back on it, you can see that was a mistake because because the pro-abortion feminists got all the attention. Yeah, they took over. And the pro-life feminists did all the work. <laughs> or not all the work. They worked together some. They worked together some. And, you know, we don't want to over, we don't want to over split this up. But at the same time, that was what happened. And so that happens. Abortion kind of takes over the feminist movement. And so when you get hired at Cosmopolitan then in uh, the early 70s, how many of the topics that they were asking you to write about had to do with abortion, would you say? Well, not that many at that time. And it, here's an interesting thing. It was more it was, when I wrote. OK, so, no, OK. So first of all, let's make this clear. At first, I didn't write for them. I was just a secretary. But then I left. I didn't stay on staff more than maybe six weeks, six months, because uh, it was very expensive in New York City, and, and we, it was time to move, and we moved back to L.A. But at that time, L.A. was about half the cost of New York City. <laughs> but anyway, um, what I wrote mostly, I didn't write abortion articles. I wrote mostly at least these wild sex articles, and the things that, that and as I say, these stories were made up because you couldn't find women who were doing this stuff in those days. And so, was that controversial, these like crazy sex articles that Cosmopolitan magazine is now known for being this women's sex magazine, and they were kind of starting it then in the 70s. But was that controversial at all with the readers? What was their feedback like at first? Very chilling. Everybody, everybody thought it was really a lot of fun. I mean, that, you know, this was something new. But listen to this, okay. Helen Gurley Brown who had turned Cosmo from a, from a regular women's magazine to a sex rag. And this is the, the editor. This is the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan at the time. Right. She had written, and I've got it right here. I, I've kept this for over 50 years. She had written a list of rules on how to write for Cosmopolitan. And in this list of rules, which I found in the garage you know, one day, it wasn't there when I was writing um, the... Uh, subverted, but but I did find it in the garage. And here's one of the rules, okay? Unless you are, there, she tells you how to lie in print, okay? It's right here. Unless you are a recognized authority on a subject, profound statements must be attributed to somebody appropriate, even if the writer has to invent the authority. And then she tells you bad and good, bad. All psychiatrists are basically Freudians. What? That's bad. That's you're not supposed to say that. Well, of course you're right. That's not even true anymore. That's not true then either. Better, according to one practitioner who specializes in group therapy, all psychiatrists are basically Freudians. So now you've given this quote to an auto, to an expert you made up, and that's supposed to make it more authentic. What of course it would. This is how propaganda works. Okay, so here's another one. Try to locate some of the buildings, restaurants, nightclubs, parks, streets, as well as entire case histories, Germano, in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant, in quotes, plant them elsewhere. 
So she is Most- telling the writers, the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan in the 70s was telling the writers, make um, up sources, make up these so-called women that want to go have this crazy, like, these crazy sexcapades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Try to locate some of these places in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant them elsewhere. Most writers live in New York. 92% of our readers do not. So therefore, you're supposed to put these women all over. They're, they're in Cincinnati. They're in Cleveland. They're here. They're there. They're everywhere. No, 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 no. They weren't anywhere. In those days, there, it was, there was propaganda. Now listen to that. Okay? <laughs> Go ahead. Did you immediately have red flags of this is completely unethical? Yes, of course I did. But you have to remember, I was young. I was ambitious. I was not Catholic. I was not Christian. And... Um, I just thought, oh, when I had, when I first came out of college, I went to a newspaper in New York City or in uh, Los Angeles, um, Torrance, California. And I, when I got there, I found out they were making up things there too. Okay, I had a had a uh, woman that worked with me in in the women's department of the of the magazine of the newspaper, and she said. She says, make a, if you want to make up a story, um, use uh, the last name of Johnson. She says, because if, it's, if you make up something about Smith or Jones, it sounds fake. But lot, Johnson is the third most important, most uh, popular last name in the country. And nobody thinks it's made up. So, it, so the fake news, so the fake news concocting wasn't only in the fashion magazine industry. This was happening in journalism everywhere was happening in New, in Los Angeles. So that was my first job. So then I get to New York and I'm finding all this again. And I'm like, oh, I guess this is the way the real world works. Okay, right? so keep going because this is crazy to me. Keep going in the rules of what else she told you to do. Here's another one. And this is very important. Avoid attacking advertisers. Cosmetics, liquor, bra, and girdle. Remember girdle? <laughs> Etc. And where convenient, where convenient, mention advertised brands rather than non-advertised competition. So again, you're selling stuff through the editorial um, writings. You're selling, you're selling the, the uh, products. So you were finding out that Cosmopolitan and all of these liberal fashion magazines didn't actually have an interest in convincing women of equality. It was more of turning her into a consumer. That's what it was. Of course it was. Of course it was. That's exactly what it was. And listen to this. Okay, now this is in the 80s. What happened? This is when abortion rights were under attack in in America. And uh, in response, Helen Gurley Brown sent out an invitation, a luncheon invitation, to all these editors all over New York City. Editors came to the meeting from, listen to this list, Good Housekeeping, Red Book, Harper's, L, Savvy, Family Circle, Ladies Home Journal, Glamour, Self, Parents, and the now defunct New Woman, which is the place I worked, Ms. and Mademoiselle, all sent representatives. Helen, Gurley Brown, the editor of Cosmo, spoke at the meeting and the editors agreed now, from all of those magazines, agreed to run pro-abortion articles 
in their March 1987 issue. Wow. Among the articles that appeared in Cosmopolitan that month were Abortion, Your Right Under the Attack, Choice, Separating Myth from Fact, and My Illegal Abortion, and an article on why eight famous women were pro-choice. As I said, one effect technique of effective propaganda is to find famous opinion leaders to promote your cult. And that's what Cosmo did. I said, this is, this is from my book, Sex and the Catholic Feminist. I said, was this a form of free speech in action? An example of independent journalists honestly struggling to serve women's best interests and the public's right to know? No. It was a deliberate attempt by a handful of elite women to shape up political po policy in our democracy, not through a free, open, and unbiased dialogue and exchange of ideas, but through what amounted to a carefully crafted propaganda campaign. Unbelievable. That's, that's what you're dealing with, and it's still going on. I was going to ask you, do you think that magazines like Cosmo, Teen Vogue, Glamour, and others are using the same excuses today to write fake news? Well, excuses is not the word. They're just, they, they're using, um, they're just doing it. I mean, there's no excuse. They're not, they're not making excuses. They're just doing it. <laughs> it's the way, it, business as usual. It's business as usual. This weekend, June 9th through 11th, 2023, is the biggest conservative conference for young women in the United States. It's called Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit, and it's in Dallas, Texas, at the Gaylord. There will be incredible main stage speakers from people like, you know, me Park, Candace Owens, Ali Stuckey, Lara Trump, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ray Lynn, Carrie Lake, Libs of TikTok, and even yours truly, me. Get last-minute tickets for this weekend at TPUSA. Com slash YWLS with code Poplitics. If you can't go in person, but you really want to see the speakers, just watch the live stream on the Turning Point USA YouTube. I opened the event, so I'll be right at the beginning of Friday night one. TPUSA.com slash YWLS with code Poplitics for 50% off or find details in the description. Did you ever have to go to any big, like, writers' meetings within Cosmopolitan for them to talk about, hey, these are the issues we want to focus on or anything like that? What they had, no, I didn't, because what they, they didn't have writers' meetings. What they had was editors' meetings every Tuesday, and editor, every editor would bring a list, I think it was six, I'm not sure anymore, of article ideas. They just made these article ideas up, and they put them in, so, so then... So then they put them in a, in a big book. And then as a writer, you'd go in and flip through the book and find an article that you wanted to do. And you'll do, you do that. But they, they were articles that ideas that people just made up. So, so you take an example. Um, well, one of them I wrote was when he doesn't want sex. Okay. Because these women are supposed to be so hot. And they're and then they then they meet this and I did write that article by when he doesn't want sex and so so you know she's this poor girl she tries everything to try to get him to have sex let's see if I can find her still right here she was a we we created Carl Carly was her name totally made up totally made up woman yeah a twenty four year old fashion model okay so. 
you know, she plainly buys lots of makeup, perfume, and beautiful clothes, right? Says of her once fiery Italian lover, Tony. <laughs> fiery Italian lover, that right there. But what's fiery? Now, of course, I tried dozens of ways to seduce him. I bought a vibrator. I don't know if I should say all no, this. No, you things. can say it. Say it. It's fine. I bought a vibrator and masturbated in front of him. Spent $300 on playthings from Fredericks of Hollywood. Learn to belly dance. Nothing turns him on. Totally absorbed in her narcissistic, consumeristic self, our imaginary Carly pays no attention to her lover nor to any struggles he may be facing. Rather, she spends hundreds of dollars on material commodities to acquire the one thing she desires and needs from him. Now, let me ask. Let me ask you something. The the fact, though, that these nymphomaniac type of women were created out of thin air to Cosmopolitan, do you think that sort of created a complex within women where we wondered, why am I not this overtly, you know, this overtly sexual prowess type of woman? What's wrong with me? Do you think that created problems? Sure, of course it would, especially with young women. Why do you think why do you think I wrote this book after I became a Catholic and I looked back with horror at all the things that we've done? And I thought, we've got to clean this up. We've got to clean this up. So, And also, you have to remember, when you dance with the devil, you're going to get stung. And because of all this, well, I'm, I'm telling these lies. I'm going along thinking I was had a beautiful marriage. But in the middle of it, I got an abortion. Hmm. Because I was surrounded by all these people who believed this. And I was only 27, which now I'm quite much older than that, as you can see. <laughs> but but uh, I, and that, that abortion, I'm, well, I'm still greatly, greatly, greatly regret. That's what I was wondering if if being around this stuff and asked to write this sort of stuff, if you started to become a victim of it, and if you feel like looking back, I was one of those brainwashed women. I was, yeah. Yeah, I, I I even wrote a chapter in here called The Deceiver Becomes the Deceived. Because if you start telling lies, if you start dancing with the devil, as I say, you're going to get stoned. How and, long after having an abortion at 27 then and working in this environment, how long did it take you to change your mind? And then you became a Catholic. So you find Catholicism. And I'm assuming this is all part of your testimony. But could you walk us through that sort of ch- heart change that you had? 30 years, took 30 years, and it wasn't until I became uh, Catholic at age 57 that, that I uh, looked back. Even after I became a Catholic, I still thought, yeah, yeah, but abortion is still okay. And then I started to analyze that and think about it, and then I went to confession. I was so scared, my knees were literally shaking when I went to confession. Do you remember and, what the priest told you? Yes, I do. And he, and he told me, he said, well, first of all, he forgave me. And he said, you will see that baby again someday because he has, he's not gone, he's not dead. And that terrified me. I'm like, I'm going to see this person later, you know? And he said, would you rather you not be alive? And I said, no, of course not. So, but from that moment on, 
I found a great joy and relief from that. I didn't think that when when we first became Catholics, my husband, of course, was part of we 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 made that decision together. And uh, when we first went into species, the priest, one of the first things my husband said was, we've had an abortion. We've had an abortion. And we had not talked about it almost for all that time. Did you find out then, after all that time, that your husband had secretly been harboring a lot of guilt over that too? Yeah. Oh, well, yes. That's when I discovered that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so these things uh, come back to haunt you. but. There is healing mm-hmm. and move on. And John Paul II, St. John Paul II, said that if you have gone through these abortions, you can now become a major figure, or not major figure, he didn't say that, but you can now become uh, a missionary in uh, pro-life me. And uh, he's right, I guess, because <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and that's what you ended up doing? Well, because, as I say, I wrote this book because we want to tell the truth. And, uh, yes, I, I work for live action now. And, uh, yes, I'm a, very much a, of a pro-life apostle. That's amazing. I didn't know that you worked for, with live action. Live action, yeah. Are you yeah. writing for them? Yeah, I'm researching and writing. Wow. We love Lila Rose here. We love live action. So that's incredible. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I've, I've written these two books, and I've uh, done a lot of uh, interviews and, and, and conferences and, and everything. Yeah. So you've spent all of these years researching women, what makes us tick, what, what brings us happiness. And if being at home, feeling bored and decorative wasn't the answer, and then working a nine-to-five with no family isn't the answer, what yeah. do you believe the answer to women's happiness is? Well, the, the, we've got it now. Well, of course, the ultimate reason for women's happiness is, is Jesus Christ. Well, that's our ultimate reason. Um, as far as the on this earth, um, I think being married, a lot of women now are married with children, with jobs. They're combining the two. A great marriage is the answer. A great marriage with a very supportive man so that you can do what you need to do. If you were working for Cosmopolitan today in 2023 and they said, Sue Ellen, you can write about anything you want, but you have one shot, one article to write, what do you think that article would be about? At Cosmo? Yeah. I, I, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> but if it did, but if it did and they said you've one shot to reach all these basically leftist women is who's reading that now, what would it's, you say to them? It's really hard. I would say you've been lied to. The myths, the myths of the sexual revolution, all the myths that, that have been perpetrated on women. Uh, we need to stop it. Uh, Cosmo would never publish that. <laughs> I know they wouldn't. <laughs> now, so you ended up writing a book called Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. Was that an easy decision to tell your story or were you nervous? It was a very difficult decision. Okay, but I would, what I started out to do is write that book to track down the history. There's a chapter in there on Roe v. Wade, too. I was trying to, because I knew Roe v. Wade had been based on a pile of lies, and I wanted to dig into that and find out what happened. And so I wanted to write a history of the women's movement. And when I sent it in to Ignatius Press, 
Uh, they wanted my personal story. I didn't want to tell my personal story. And a friend, my best, one of my best friends said, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Because I said, if I tell my personal story, I'm going to have to tell that abortion story. Mm -hmm. I so I went out to a lake and I cried for a while. <laughs> and then that night, I lived next door to my priest because after my husband died, we were, had a beautiful marriage for 40 years. After my husband died, they invited me to live in this little house on the church property next to the church. So the priest knew I was upset that night. So he invited me over for dinner. And I told him that, you know, I, I don't know whether to tell my story or just, you know. I said, they've already given me money for this book. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, if you're going to tell it, he didn't say I should. He said, do it as an ascetic discipline. Just, just the facts. And I wrote that chapter once. That's it. I was done. So that's, that, that was great advice. I did do it. Has Cosmopolitan ever come after you for the things that you've said? That's an interesting thing. No, they have not. And there was one of their writers that wanted to interview me. Really? Uh, yes, Did you say when I, yes? When I went to the March for Life, she was going to interview me. She wanted to interview me. And I and Ignatius wanted me to talk to her, wanted me to talk to her. And I was like, she'll just she'll just lie. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk to her. Well, was very interesting. When we were at the March for Life, she called me on the phone in the, in the hotel. And she had read my book and liked it very much. But she says, Cosmo won't let me talk to you because they, they have a policy that they, they can't talk to somebody who's been an employee. Yeah, right. I'm sure if I'm sure if you were on the other side of things and, and you were like, oh, I was one of the people on the front lines and so proud of that. I was on the front lines in the 70s with Cosmo, you know, with the feminist movement. They would be like, we'd love to catch up. Where is this original feminist Cosmo writer now? Like, you know that that's bull. <laughs> anyway, that's what happened. That's what happened. <laughs> um, why is it so imperative for the left that women in particular fall for their propaganda? Because they could, you know, there's men, there's all these other people to brainwash. But why is it so important for women to be brainwashed when it comes to culture? Well, you, you, you got it right. Money, money, money. The consumers, you know, they're selling all this stuff. You can sell, think of the billions of dollars you can sell, you can make if all you get all these women on the hormone pill uh, from age 16 on. Think every woman in America, you're going to think of the money involved. There's so much money involved. So much money. And do you remember in the 70s when there was a group of women in the original feminist movement, not the sexual revolution, but the feminist movement, who went to a Senate hearing and tried to talk to the senators about the dangers of birth control and said, all of these women across the country are experiencing all of these side effects. Nobody is listening to us. And then they kicked them out. Do you remember that? The Nelson, yeah. it was like the Nelson pill hearings or something? The Nelson Pillarys, and it's in my book. <gasps> and the woman that that led that um, was was working for all these women's magazines, and they wouldn't they wouldn't um, publish her articles anymore. The the pharmaceutical companies said, if you publish this woman's articles, uh, we will not uh, advertise in your magazines. So there were a whole bunch of magazines. Let's see if I can find that. Which magazines? Yes. Um, While you look, I will say. 
These women who went to the Nelson Pill hearings in the 1970s to bring up the dangers of birth control, they talked about, they stood up and they said, we are experiencing depression, heart problems, decreased uh, sex drive, weight gain, blood clots, and all of this stuff because of the birth control pill. They were just removed. Do you know if Cosmo ever wrote about this? They never wrote about it? They would never have written about it. No, 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 no. This is the one. You're right. In the early 1970s, it was it was Barbara Steeman. She launched the Women's Health Revolution with her book, The Doctor's Case Against the Pill. And she revealed over 50 potential side effects of the pill, ranging from blood clots, infertility, and breast cancer to irritability and depression. She sparked the U.S. Senate, the Nelson Pill Hearing. Angry young women repeatedly disrupt the hearings demanding to know why female patients weren't testifying and why there was no pill for men. They were angry, but they were, they were real. As a result of the Nelson Pill hearings, listen to this, drug companies were forced to place a health warning on patient, for patients on oral contraceptives, the first informational insert on any prescription drug. So the reason we have informational inserts on prescription drugs was because of the Nelson Pill hearings. But Seaman, who earned her living as a magazine writer the way I did, would pay a steep career price for this victory. In the 1980s, she would be blacklisted from magazines by powerful pharmaceutical companies who refused to advertise in publications that carried her story. So what you're saying is, Sue Ellen, is that everything goes back to the money. And even though the truth said birth control pills are hurting women's health, they would not publish it because it would lose them big pharma advertising dollars. Amen. You got it. Magazines who would no longer publish her articles include, listen to this, you think it's going to be Cosmo. She wasn't publishing in Cosmo anyway. Ladies Home Journal, Family Circle, Omni, and Hadassah, the Jewish magazine, would no longer carry her story. That's very interesting. Yeah. So we're talking, we're talking, that other list I gave you of all those magazines that met with, you know, good housekeeping, I mean, with who met with uh, Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, these were, this was, this was pervasive. This was all over New York. The birth control stuff bothers me so much because to me, that is one of the most damaging lies that we were sold as women with the feminist movement is that this is so good for us that there's there's no cons this will make us equal we'll be able to live life you know better because we won't have to worry about kids and all of this and so many women for decades have been sick as dogs on this pill and nobody will be honest about it because of their ties to big pharma yeah It's so interesting to me that my guest is here this week talking about feminist propaganda in the women's fashion magazines all those years ago. And now this month, we've got a pregnant man on Glamour UK. They're using language like bleeder or chest feeder, but that stops here. Periods and pregnancy are a girls club. That's all there is to it. Garnu is a conservative-owned feminine product company that promises to never call you a birthing person or menstruator ever. 
Did you know that most tampon brands fund Planned Parenthood or support abortion? Garnu is one of the only tampon brands that doesn't. And Garnu offers 100% organic tampons that you can buy one time or via a subscription. There are no dyes, fragrances, titanium dioxide, or any of that other crap. They do have plastic applicators, but what I love is that they're BPA-free. Don't you dare go to Target this month for your tampons. If you need menstrual cups, Garnu has those too. While your money is being used by other tampon companies to promote trans kids and abort babies, Garnu uses part of your money to fight human trafficking for girls in Nepal with every purchase. Garnu literally means rescue in Nepali. So join the Girls Only Club by going to garnu.com slash spillover to receive 15% off your first month of organic tampons when you subscribe exclusively for Spillover listeners. And the code can be used for one-time purchases as well, not just a subscription. G-A-R-N-U-U dot com slash Spillover with code Spillover for 15% off. We're not freaking bleeders. We are women. Support companies who respect that. Click the link in the show notes to shop Garnu today. You've two books and, and remind us again what both of those books are. Okay. Well, the first book is Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. This book is, and strangely enough, it's, it's, getting, it's getting dated. And I, and I, because there's, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff in there on, on all the lies that, that Roe v. Wade was based on. Well, praise God, Roe v. Wade is gone. And so somebody said, when, I, when Roe v. Wade was first overturned, uh, they wanted to talk to me, and I says. They they wanted to interview me. And I said it's over. We won. <laughs> yeah. So, so in some ways, you know, I really feel. But but this this tells the the thing about okay. So this tells my personal story. What happened with with uh, what I finally how I finally told my personal story is my my beloved husband of forty years had died, and so I decided everything that happened to me happened to him. So I would tell his story. Mm. So. Th- is also a love story, and that's what people like about it. It's both it both tells the history and it's a love story. And then the other one, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, carries this one a little bit farther, carries subverted a little bit farther because it tells um what else how how did how did this whole gender thing get hijacked the feminist movement? Yeah. What are what are your thoughts on that? Well, it was there was a, a lesbian named Kate Millett. Who wrote a book called Sexual Politics, and in the, again in the seventies, and she became the superstar for a while in um, the media. The she the Time magazine plastered her and her picture all over the cover. They said that she was you know leading the women's movement, and that's that it got hijacked by uh, gender gender benders. Ooh. What do you think that if if Betty Friedan was alive today, or Betty Friedan is how you say her name. What do you, if Betty Friedan was alive today, what do you think she would think about the feminist movement allowing men into it now? <laughs> I don't think so. I, she was a, she was one tough cookie. I don't think she liked that at all. I always wonder what the original feminists would think about how crazy the feminist movement has gotten where it's not even about women anymore. Well, I think they're wrong. <laughs> And a lot of good things came out of the women's movement, but of course now it's gone all wonky. And and in this book, 
uh, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, I was still saying that we should reclaim the F word, feminism. But I'm not so sure anymore. It's gone so wonky anymore. I, I think it's too late to reclaim the F word. <laughs> yes. Sue Ellen, thank you so much for coming on The Spillover, sharing your story, talking about your books, your expertise, and your knowledge on just the feminist movement as a whole, but also all of the propaganda that women have fed, been fed throughout the years. I think that's very enlightening. So just thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love how God used someone like Sue Ellen in this way. What an incredible testimony and important realization for women that so much of what seems innocent, even a fashion magazine, could be full of fake news and fake sources and even fake people. One of my favorite interviews that I've done was with this girl. She calls herself the leftist dropout. That's her social media name. But she's a 20-something-year-old girl who's a full-blown socialist feminist, had a cab tattooed on her hand. You know, all cops are bastards. She marched for George Floyd, was pro-abortion, and then had her entire worldview melted down. Today, she's conservative, Christian, married, and even has a baby. And this all happened within the last five years. If you want to understand how to talk to someone on the left or how to change their mind, her story is so neat. That is season two, episode two of The Spillover. Now, do me a favor and please leave a five-star review for us. Next week is Father's Day, and I'm having the coolest dad on to talk all things adoption and special needs parenting. His life story is going to have you laughing and crying. The Spillover is back next Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, anywhere you get your podcasts, or you have the option to watch the episodes on the Politics YouTube channel. I'm Alex Clark, and this is The Spillover. Love you, mean it. Bye. Bye.